Hello, this is Gregory Novak. This is The Cunning of Geist, episode 26. Welcome back. Please follow me on Twitter and on my Facebook page, both at Cunning of Geist. One of the biggest arguments you hear today regards the conflict between religion and science. Well, this conflict appears in many places in society all over the world. Let me focus just on one story to make it clear here in the United States. I am going to be referring to a case entitled Kitzmiller versus the Dover Area School Board. Now, Dover is a town in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania in the United States, just a bit south of the Pennsylvania State Capitol of Harrisburg. In 2004, the Dover School Board changed its biology teaching curriculum to require that intelligent design be presented as an alternative to Darwinian evolution. And that a specific book entitled Of Pandas and People be used as the reference book for intelligent design. It uh, told what intelligent design is about and how it differs from Darwinian evolution. And specifically, the book promotes the notion that species, including human beings, were created fully formed by a creator. And further, there are two factions of, of intelligent design, two different groups. One is called the New Earth Intelligent Design, and the other is the Old Earth Intelligent Design. Now, New Earth means that all these species were created within the last, say, 5,000 to 10,000 years. Old Earth accepts the age of the Earth, the geology behind that, the science behind that, but they believe that species were created fully formed in bursts during that time. Now, just to back up a bit, the term intelligent design, it's often been shortened to ID, was used in this court case and when they when they implemented this because um, it differed from the term creationism. Now, the reason they used a new term was because the United States Supreme Court said that teaching creationism in schools violated the separation of church and state, which is a primary law in, in the United States. This was a case that happened in the state of Louisiana in the U.S. Um, they were teaching creationism alongside of Darwinian evolution, and the Supreme Court knocked this down in 1987. So in Dover, Pennsylvania, they thought that intelligent design might pass where creationism had previously failed. They thought that the semantic change might get them around the church versus state argument. Now, in this particular case, 11 parents sued the school board that ID was a form of creationism, which is outlawed. And after um, a trial, they did prevail in court, and they won. And uh, they could no longer teach um, ID in, in the Dover School District. That's just one contemporary example. But, but it's interesting, you know, how widespread is this belief in intelligent design and, and creationism? Is it just a couple of states and towns, or is it more widespread? Well, in surveys conducted by Pew Research Center in the United States, it appears that it's pretty widespread. Depending on how you ask the question, there's some 60% of Americans believe in evolution. Belief in creationism is 40%, and obviously it's strongest among evangelical Christians. However, there's an important distinction that occurs among those that believe in evolution. 
And this is whether God has a role in it at all. In 2019, Gallup did a study. They found similar results that 40% of Americans believe in a strict creationist view and 60% believe in, in evolution. However, among the 60% that believe in evolution, what Gallup found was six in 10 of them believe that it occurs with God's guidance, with the help of God. And 40% of those that believe in evolution believe there's, there's no involvement in God. So a little bit of a split there. We're in favor of God's help. But that leaves only 20 to 25% of the American population that believe in blind evolution without any supernatural help. So there you have the, uh, the statistics on this. And this, of course, is, can be contrasted with 97% of active scientists that believe in, in blind evolution per pew. Only 3% of active scientists are uh, creationists. Now, I know as a being a pollster myself in a previous life, that uh, the, the, this notion of God helped has a lot to do with how you ask the question. And it depends on a lot of factors. It depends on what one means by God. There are many, many different definitions. It depends on what it means that God has a role in evolution. What kind of role? What exactly did God do? Etc. And each of these could have many, many different interpretations. So it's not just a clear-cut thing of, yeah, God helped. It really depends on where somebody's coming from. But uh, be that as it may, one can see a clear divide here in terms of this. And it's not only evolution versus creationism, but it's blind evolution versus evolution with guidance somehow. But there's another alternative, one that's based on Aristotle and Hegel. And this alternative will take into account what we know about evolution today, since obviously Darwin came after Aristotle and, and Hegel. I've discussed this here before. Hegel takes a teleological view toward nature. It's a purpose-driven view. Spirit, Geist is a work here, hence the name of this podcast, The Cunning of Geist. Now, it's important to say once again, and I also, I, I, I do not take any issue with any finding of Darwinian evolution, not at all. And even since Darwin's time, there have been many enhancements that have been made to his essential concept, which still holds. Um, it, it's often now called neo-Darwinism. And um, I believe that there are even newer findings in science that possibly support even a broader view of evolution beyond genetic mutation and, and natural selection. This includes epigenetics, as well as uh, possible homeostasis cognition of organisms, but I'll get into this in a minute. I believe that these new emerging scientific facts do not support a purely blind materialistic view of evolution. But first, just a bit more on the religious view of, of creationism. Um, as we discussed last episode, Hegel views religions as expressing truth, but in a story form, picture thinking, as he calls it. And these stories do not have to be historically true. Hegel goes so far as to say that to look at them as history destroys the truth they contain. I quoted Hegel in the last episode, quote, to consider the resurrection of Jesus as an event is to adopt the outlook of the historian, and this has nothing to do with religion. Belief or disbelief in the resurrection is a mere fact deprived of its religious interest. It's a matter for the intellect whose occupation is just the death of religion. That's from Hegel's The Spirit of Christianity and Its Fate, 1798. So, any attempt to treat religion as historical is just the death of that religion, per Hegel. 
So new earth creationists who believe this is actual geological history are doing severe disservice to their religion, per Hegel. So are the old earth creationists who say that God made each species whole. They are ignoring scientific fact as well. No need to do that. Regarding those that believe in evolution, however, and saying that God is somehow helping out, there's so much variation here, as I mentioned, what, what they mean by God, what they mean by helping out, that um, it's hard to, to, to address this specifically. Now, on the other hand, dealing with science, science can also be taken too far as well. It's taken too far when it states that what it does not know must conform to its current belief paradigm. This is often called scientism. For example, I would say that naturalistic materialism is the dominant scientific paradigm today. I talked about scientific paradigms in episode 12, particularly the groundbreaking work of Thomas Kuhn, who in his seminal work, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, discussed these paradigms. He even coined the phrase paradigm. But in today's paradigm of naturalistic materialism, there are clear anomalies that are cropping up, um, and Kuhn predicted this. And they are recognized by science, uh, and it has to do primarily with quantum physics, things such as wave-particle duality, spooky action at a distance, etc. And uh, these anomalies may eventually lead to a paradigm shift in the naturalistic paradigm. However, it's also key to point out that naturalistic materialism is a philosophical belief that everything arises from natural events and causes and that supernatural or spiritual explanations are excluded. Now, that is a belief. It's not a scientific fact. Science can only speak to what it knows. Science is a highly successful predictive modeling enterprise. It is a method of discovery, the scientific method that it uses to develop its predictive models. But any leaps from this modeling to a belief system in general, then that becomes philosophy. And it's important to continually point this out and to recognize that science itself is based on philosophical principles. There's a whole discipline called the philosophy of science. For example, the, the scientific method cannot prove the validity of the scientific method. Science takes it as a given. There are many other things that science takes as a given, just to mention a few. For example, the flow of time, uh, whether it's an illusion or not. Science can't, cannot prove that the world was not created five minutes ago with the appearance of age. Also, science cannot prove the existence of other minds. It's a big one. Or that we may all be part of a computer simulation out of the movie The Matrix. But of course, what science has demonstrated must be taken as real. Much of the benefits we enjoy in the modern world are the direct result of science. No question about it. But what I want to do in this episode is address a key area that I believe science does not deal with within its naturalistic materialism paradigm, and that is purpose. Hegel's philosophy, in essence, is teleological in that he sees a purpose to life. Life and mind are evolving through history with the aim of greater freedom and self-knowledge, with the aim of spirit coming to recognize itself more and more each day. As we have discussed here several times, including the last episode, Hegel saw this purpose evolving in nature through three stages. Subjective spirit, which is one's personal psychology, Objective spirit, which is how individuals unite in a community, and absolute spirit, which is how spirit expresses itself and mediates subjective and objective spirit through art, religion, and philosophy. Now, speaking of art, uh, Nietzsche has a great quote. He said, 
without music, life would be a mistake. He said this in the Twilight of the Idols. Well, we know there is music in the world, so Nietzsche is saying that life is not a mistake. And if it's not a mistake, then it is purposeful. Along these lines, Kurt Vonnegut stated in an interview in 2002, music is to me proof of the existence of God. And in his very last book, Man Without a Country, Vonnegut stated, if I should ever die, God forbid, let this be my epitaph. The only proof he needed for the existence of God was music. Beethoven took a similar view. He stated music is the mediator between the spiritual and the sensual life. Obviously, he's acknowledging here the existence of a spiritual life. And Plato said that music gives soul to the universe. Music, of course, comes under Hegel's category of art, one of his three stages of absolute spirit. It's through music that many of us get a sense of the spiritual or something higher. I know I certainly did and do. Not taking away anything from science, but it has nothing to say about music. Not doesn't say too much. Computers have finally beaten a grandmaster in chess, but a computer is yet to make a song that hits the Billboard 100. Now, I've said before, I'll say it again. I totally buy into Darwinian evolution, what it says, but I don't take it further into scientism. I don't buy what it is not saying. I also believe that there's more going on in evolution than genetic mutation and survival of the fittest. Um, I'll be getting into this now. For example, it it's hard to fathom that a piece of music such as Beethoven's Ninth Symphony can be explained fully by blind evolution alone. Blind evolution has one purpose, and that is survival. Only the fittest survive. Survival of the fittest. And what drives survival? Well, as contemporary philosopher Patricia Churchland has said, it's the four Fs. Feeding, fighting, fleeing, and reproducing. Getting from the four Fs to Beethoven's ninth is quite a leap. Something else seems to be at work here. I don't think Beethoven's motivation to write that score was to make himself hot. Um, let me back up. Hegelianism, viewed in light of modern science, is not intelligent design. It's not creationism. Hegel is saying that there is a spiritual part of all of us inside, and it seeks expression and fulfillment through art, religion, philosophy. And this something extra is just not found in the naturalistic, materialistic paradigm. Contemporary philosopher Thomas Nagel puts it well in a 2013 New York Times piece from their Opinionator section. I quote, The scientific revolution of the 17th century depended on a crucial limiting step at the start. It depended on subtracting from the physical world as an object of study everything mental, consciousness, meaning, intention, or purpose. The physical sciences as they have developed since then describe the elements of which the material universe is composed and the laws governing their behavior. We, ourselves, as physical organisms, are part of that universe, composed of the same basic elements as everything else, since our mental lives evidently depend on our existence as physical organisms. It seems natural to think that the physical sciences can, in principle, provide the basis for an explanation of the mental aspects of reality as well. However, I believe this possibility is ruled out by the conditions that have defined the physical sciences from the beginning. The physical sciences can describe organisms like ourselves as part of the objective spatio-temporal order, but they cannot describe the subjective experiences of such organisms or how the world appears to their different particular points of view. 
There can be a purely physical description of the neurophysiological processes that give rise to an experience, and also of the physical behavior that is typically associated with it. But such a description, however complete, will leave out the subjective essence of the experience, how it is from the point of view of the subject, without which it would not be a conscious experience at all. So the physical sciences necessarily leave an important aspect of nature unexplained. Further, since the mental arises through the development of animal organisms, the nature of those organisms cannot be fully understood through the physical sciences alone. Finally, since the long process of biological evolution is responsible for the existence of conscious organisms, and since a purely physical process cannot explain their existence, it follows that biological evolution must be more than just a physical process, and the theory of evolution, if it is to explain the existence of conscious life, must become more than just a physical theory. This means that the scientific outlook, if it aspires to a more complete understanding of nature, must expand to include theories capable of explaining the appearance in the universe of mental phenomena and the subjective points of view in which they occur. Theories of a different type than we have seen so far, end quote. Okay, there's a lot there. Let's unpack this. First, Nagel is saying that the highly successful scientific revolution took the observer out of the equation. Science describes what goes on, whether someone is looking, measuring, or not. However, we as conscious beings are part of this universe, not separate from it. And the physical laws of science do not explain our subjective awareness, the so-called hard problem of consciousness. Science can describe what goes on in our brains when we are doing something, and science can describe the actions we take as a result of our thinking. But it cannot describe our own impression and consciousness of this. So something is left unexplained, and it gets worse. Not only does science not show how consciousness is formed, but does not show how and why our animal organisms can create such subjective opinions. And there's a long process of biological evolution that took place to produce a conscious animal. This is not explained either. Obviously, the scientific theory of evolution needs to be widened to eventually explain this. Nagel sums this up in the same article in one sentence as follows, quote, mind I suspect, is not an inexplicable accident or a divine and anomalous gift, but a basic aspect of nature that we will not understand until we transcend the built-in limits of contemporary scientific orthodoxy, end quote. This is what I believe, it's what Nagel believes, and this is what Hegelianism offers. Now, on to Aristotle, just a bit. I mentioned Aristotle before in episode 22 in connection with Alastair McIntyre's book, After Ethics, published in 1981, in which he believes that the scientific revolution brought about a lack of any reason for ethics, a lack of any purpose to life itself. It brought a situation of no meaning other than personal individual emotivism. Yes, morals and ethics still exist, but it's like they are just floating in the air, attached to nothing as Will Durant says in The Story of Philosophy. McIntyre hawkens back to Aristotle and his teachings that all things have a purpose for which they are intended, a reason for being. All things. The Greek word eudaimonia is often used to describe this. Aristotle used it to signify the greatest good. It is a sense of purpose to life and efforts to achieve this purpose. Some contemporary biologists are also coming to this view. Physiologist J. Scott Turner has an interesting take regarding this. He credits Aristotle with the foundation of his own evolutionary model. 
He and others are advancing a scientific theory that homeostasis has a role in biological evolution. Homeostasis is a tendency toward a relatively stable equilibrium within an organism between interdependent elements, especially as maintained by physiological processes. Turner proposes that an organism will seek to modify itself according to external conditions over time to maintain homeostasis, that there is a movement in this homeostasis to adapt and to evolve that's part of it. So the organism can sense a better way and it moves and adapts toward it. This is purely natural within the organism, but it is not blind, um, but it's not a platonic form either. It's not something that exists out in, in space. It's something that's cognized in some way as being an improvement to the organism to help it continue its homeostasis. And there's an element of cognition by the organism which influences this homeostasis. This is natural. It's not intelligent design by an outside agent, but it is more than just blind evolution. Turner is the author of a 2017 book, Purpose and Desire, What Makes Something Alive and Why Modern Darwinism Has Failed to Explain It. And he's currently working on his third book, preliminarily titled Biology's Second Law, Evolution, Purpose, and Desire, which builds the case that evolution operates through the complementary principles of Darwinian natural selection, biology's first law, alongside homeostasis, biology's second law. There's also the emerging field of epigenetics, which is an interesting um, science. It's that there are inheritable characteristics of gene expression, that while they do not change the underlying DNA, they can result in behavioral adaptations, such as a fear response. So if an organism suffers a lot of fear, they certain genes may express differently in that organism, and that that can be inherited to their offspring. So they'll be born with this fear response, that this gene expression. So this is another area that has, has great impact on, on evolution. Now, to summarize, evolution in its present form has nothing to say about how life originated on this planet or how life developed into animal organisms capable of conscious thought and intention. And certainly, it's been proven that gene mutation and natural selection are part of the evolutionary story, but it does seem that it's not the whole story, as Nagel and Turner pointed out. Now, this emphasis on teleology and purpose, it has a practical application as well to all of us. Purpose is built into us. We can all strive to make things better, make our lives better, make the world better. Creating a purpose is not some meaningless exercise to make us feel better. It is the purpose inherent in life itself. Eudaimonia. In episode 24, we covered Hegel's famous notion that substance is subject. The opposite to this is limiting evolution to just blind naturalistic materialism. Well, that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed The Cunning of Geist, please tell your friends. This is Gregory Novak. This is The Cunning of Geist. See you next time.